Hello, everybody. Today we are with Sagi and Dekel from Zero Networks. Sagi is the VP of Research at Zero Networks, and Dekel is a senior security researcher at the same company. Hello, Sagi. Hello, Dekel. What's up? Thank you a lot. Thanks for having us. So, you know, guys, you both, um, when looking at your background and um, disclaimer, we work together. Uh, in the past, uh, looking at you and your background, it's uh, very rich in both big companies like enterprises and startups, uh, all in the cybersecurity space in Israel. How would you describe the, you know, what are the biggest, you know, differences between uh, working in a huge company or medium big company to a small startup, 10 people? There's the fun factor. <laughs> Which the, the smaller the company, the the more fun it is for many reasons. Describe fun. Fun uh, the, the happy hours, the beers, or the product. No, no, it's not, it's it's uh, it's also that actually. You can uh, ask Nicole uh, later what he thinks about our happy hours and social uh, <laughs> social interactions. But yeah, it's more intimate. You know, you know everybody, happy hours are what everybody likes to do and not what somebody decided that happy should be five or 10 years ago. Now everybody's happy in the same way, you know, and fun in the sense that, you know, things just move fast. Dekel? Well, there are many differences. One of them being, you know, the funding that you have in a big company, obviously in enterprise level is, is vastly different. It really impacts your project. So... In enterprise, you could be almost limitless in the amount of funding that you can get for a certain product, which could be really cool. But on the other hand, you're at times more constrained, you know, uh, to certain processes, to certain, uh, you know, shared goals of the whole company is as a whole. And then for a startup company, you might not have the same uh, funding that you would have in a big company, but, you know, you do have that uh, agility and speed and you get to work on many different things where an enterprise you wouldn't get to. Uh, so that, that's definitely one thing. I think also in the, you know, the purpose, where in a very large company, you feel like you have a lot of impact regarding you know, the security of the company, sometimes even you know, uh, the whole industry, which you probably know uh, really good. And then in startup companies, it's more about the potential of, of what is your impact. You know, if this if startup actually becomes you know, a, a big company that, and with some product that is actually being used, then your potential is, uh, you have a potential to impact not only one company, but, you know, hundreds of companies, thousands of companies. So it could be very good, uh, really amazing, but, you know, you have to trust the company to get to that size and know that you know, you're doing the work today that'll probably pay off in the future. Do you feel the decision-making process is more democratic in a small or in a large organization? Do you feel like a startup is all about the vision of the founders or you have more of a say than you would in a large organization or, or is it the other way around where they are, it's probably more mature in terms of governance and so your input is more systematically taken into account? So honestly, I think it's not necessarily, it really depends on 
the company size, but uh, in many cases on management. So you could have worked at really small places where management had all the say and everyone else just followed that dream and worked at small places where it's the opposite and it's very, very democratic and everybody's equally as important you know, for executing you know, this shared vision that it's true that the founder probably were the ones that came with that vision, but once it's a company, it becomes this shared vision. It gets morphed and matured oftentimes, and then it's up to everybody to impact on it. And the same goes for a larger company. In some cases, it could be very bureaucratic and very you know, hard to get things moved. But then on the other hand, large companies, you can have massive impact. Uh, you can you know, do a project, you can come to some decision, and that could impact you know, how thousands of people work in that company. So it really depends on management, I think, more than the size of the company. I think it depends on the decision. There are big decisions and small decisions. Like there are smaller decisions like we make in the, right now, for example, if you want to change something in the GUI, put it up sometimes for a vote. Hey, what looks better? A, B, or C, people vote and they say, okay, if everybody thinks it's B, then we go with B. There are some decisions that are very tightly controlled by product management. There's one person in charge of product and he makes a decision and that's it. And I guess it's the same with a big company. It's just, you know, like Dekel said, there's a lot of, uh, you change one bit somewhere and it affects hundreds or thousands of users. So you need people to sign off. So come to fruition or need these preconditions and so on that just makes the process a little bit more bureaucratic and longer and so on. That's fascinating. Actually, I can connect to it based on my past experience. It's um, the bottom line, I think, is that it's truly, it feels really exciting to work on, you know, in a small company, in a startup and working on something new. And uh, this is part of my next question, actually, about the feeling of, you know, designing and creating a new product that speaking of large companies will later affect on so many companies and, and their associates and, and their, uh, if we speak about cybersecurity and, and on their cybersecurity uh, measures and security uh, control. So that's really um, sounds exciting. Uh, and I imagine that you feel it these days. Uh, Dekel, can you tell us a little on how you made your first steps in cybersecurity? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started, you know, as a lot of people here in Israel, uh, serving in the military, in the intelligence units. Uh, actually, started my career more on the IT side, um, and after afterwards, I worked uh, in IT and a little bit of software development for a few years. My first venture into cybersecurity uh, was a company called um, Glam, which was later acquired by Accenture. And there I kind of shifted from, you know, IT and software development into cybersecurity. Whenever I tell this, people always, you know, seem not shocked, but, you know, surprised. How did you do the transition? But honestly, I think IT and security, you know, really go hands, hands in hands. There's a lot of shared knowledge that you must have, you know, whether it's operations systems, network protocols, even, you know, the security projects themselves are really shared common ground between IT and security. So uh, it's more about how you look at things. Uh, in IT, you, I guess you care more about things, you know, basically working. And when you switch to security, you're trying to see how you can get things to stop working, how you can break them. Uh, so that was kind of my first venture into cybersecurity. I uh, started, you know, doing pen testing, 
some research, uh, even DDoS attacks and things like that. Uh, moved on to the R&D uh, team. Later on, I moved to a company called LightCyber, which did uh, normal um, network behavior analytics, part of the research group. LightCyber was later on acquired by Palo Alto and became part of the Cortex uh, solution, which is the XDR. After that, I moved on uh, to work uh, at Novartis, which is a very large pharmaceutical company, around, I think, about 200,000 people, 150,000 people. So that was a major change for me because I mostly worked at small companies. So I was one of the people who started the Cyber Center. That's where I met Gilad and Sagi. Kind of had the chance to work both on the offensive team and the defensive team. And then later on, I joined Sagi in Zero Networks. It sounds like many of the places you worked for were later acquired. So it sounds like a, a good thing to work together on a startup with you. Yeah, hopefully. That's very cool. Actually, I think that we also heard it, uh, Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, we heard it so many times that, um, especially from the uh, attackers, not the defenders, it comes it comes hand in hand, I would say, the, the daily work and the like, curiosity of how to break into things. Like, uh, you got to have this um, constant aspiration to see how things work and later break into, into them and so on. So it's pretty awesome to hear it again and again from anybody around, you know, security research. Sagi, do you sympathize with that? Is that something that's also burned in your uh, blood, like, you know, break into things and think how, how they work and stuff like that? Uh, similar. I, I was actually always on the defensive side. I'm not, uh, not great at breaking things. <laughs> I was always interesting security in the part of, of defense actually come from, I was an electrical engineer and 50 or 60 or 70% of my time in the army, that's what I did. did like more algorithms and hardware and stuff like that. Uh, a little bit of software and actually just like software more than hardware. That's what led me to seeking out cyber positions, but I didn't really like to write code. So that's... <laughs> So I landed in between uh, in the security research. Some stuff I picked up from from the intelligence unit. Other stuff I picked up along the way, mostly from just trying to understand, okay, how attackers work? What do they do? Okay, that's their MO. How can we fix it? Let's think of a solution. Let's try it out and so on and so forth. I worked for Imperva, which was already public, I think, when I, when I got there, which is sort of like a medium size company have then a later transfer to uh, aqua security which does container security cloud security and i've been there for actually relatively a short time then i moved from the the vendor side to the other side of, of security of the actual people who consume consumers uh, consumers of security products which has been a very very good experience because up until then you're sort of living in fantasy land of uh, I'm the vendor and I'm building this new feature and it's going to be awesome and it's going to save the world. <laughs> and you have no idea what people are doing. You have no idea that in the meantime, on the other side, you know, your server is shut down somewhere <laughs> and nobody's even looking at it uh, because there's a bunch of other problems that you don't even aware of or 
even begin to to think of how to address them and so on. And then I've been to Novartis. I met, uh, of course, you guys. I met Deckel and I met Yugilad. And then I moved back to the back to the vendor side, uh, and that's what I'm doing here. In that's how I transition back here to zero networks. Actually, every time I'm thinking about this uh, shift from vendor side to consumer side, I, I think about you know getting the complaints uh, versus be the one that complains that uh, things doesn't work. So pretty awesome to to do that. Oh yeah, maybe maybe you learn a bit more empathy, <laughs> understanding what it's like to be uh, on the receiving end. It's definitely a, a ever more complex industry. One that uh, I was having a discussion today, actually. That's that's sort of a point I wanted to make with a, a journalist who reached out and was asking questions about you know the industry and and the shortage of talent. And uh, he wanted to do uh, um, an article or a series of articles about you know uh, uh, the failures of the government uh, somehow in uh, supplying you know the industry uh, um, in in cyber defensive talent and um, you know as much as it's nice to complain about the government and what they should and should not do i was wondering if that's even at all possible for you know a government entity agency a ministry to anticipate the needs of a market that's changing so fast that even its most important stakeholders have no idea where it's going to be in six months. I mean, when you're working every day in cyber defense, it's hard enough to know what skills you should develop to stay up to date. So uh, I don't even know if it's possible for, for a nation to anticipate that and, and changes, change the way it's uh, educating uh, its young people to, to fulfill that need. I, I don't know. How, how do you guys... You know, keep up uh, with, with the industry and sharpen your skills? And how do you know where to put your efforts in, in, in learning uh, uh, new skills? And, and do you believe the government would ever be capable of, of doing that at scale? It's a difficult question. I hope that will be good. Well, that's why we, that's <laughs> I, why we invited I, I you. It's for the, the hard question. stuff. <laughs> so so I, ju- I just know that tons of people ask, oh, should I do this certification or that certification? And then you read... Uh, uh, top 10 certifications to have and then the next year it's another one and and it's hard enough individually to keep up so how can you know how can a university design a curriculum probably takes years uh uh and and <laughs> anticipate that what is going to be even in four years i mean that we're based in israel and here maybe maybe fortunately or unfortunately most certifications don't carry a lot of weight it's mostly your experience and a proven track record or you can prove yourself at an interview or you can prove your track record you know i've done x y and z and that's why i have the experience for uh, this job um i do know that in europe and i think usa uh, there's a much more wait for certificates i personally don't have any certificates uh, i have an electrical engineering degree but that's sort of uh, it's from the university. It's not like a security certificate per se. Uh, so actually, we're not that strong in the uh, certificate uh, scene. Uh, for me personally, it's usually, you know, somebody throws a problem at me and then I say, okay, how can I fix it? And if I need to learn something on the way, then, you know, I, I try my best to learn it, build something, hack something, uh, watch some videos, if there's an online course or whatever, I, I try to do something to mm. at least advance the, the solution to, to this problem. And that's, 
that's usually how I learn most of the stuff. It's not that I'm you know thinking, okay, I need if I want to get from point A to B, then I need to go through this path. I need to do this course or that course or this certificate or that certificate. And finally I get to this destination. It's more like, okay, for example, I arrive here at Zero Networks, they say we need to solve this problem of lateral movement. Okay, let's find solutions. During the work, you learn what you need to learn. If you said 10 years ago, you went to a company and you said cybersecurity, they say, they would say what? Now it's obvious because of, I think ransomware mostly changed the game. So everything and everyone can be targeted. It doesn't matter if you have 20 employees or 200 or 2,000 or 200,000. You, you practically need to hire people that, sorry for putting it very simple, that know how to Google and think of what to Google, right? Yeah, you need like to what hire... questions should they ask and have the skills to actually leverage the open source? And then that's when you're a small company, you can barely hire maybe one or two IT guys. Uh, the chances that you hire, hire somebody who's that gifted you know, or who can handle everything, uh, it's very hard. Even the best security researchers, they're usually are best at certain things. If you have to build a quote-unquote stack of people, each one with their own expertise, you know, I'm not an expert in API security. So if something, if there's a trigger or an alert, even if I have a, a vendor coming and sell to me uh, API security and that API security triggers some kind of alert, I would, I would have to research and understand what the hell does it mean? What do I need to do with it? How do I fix it? And so on and so forth. So I'm guessing no matter how many talents you throw it, I think I don't think throwing resources at, at this problem from this side, from the consumer side, is going to fix it. What I'm very curious about to, to hear from you, I, I think, is that, you know, the phase where, where you're currently at joining a cybersecurity startup in a flourishing, uh, uh, you know, uh, industry, a uh, high-tech industry in Israel with uh, so many uh, other, you know, uh, not, not direct competitors, but other uh, that uh, steal the focus. At the end of the day, you need to come up with a solution to an existing problem, or at least uh, uh, provide a better solution uh, than others. I would be very keen to hear a little about it and specifically on how you think of uh, the next features or the next, um, the next uh, enablers to, to solve things and be enable better security to future uh, clients. Could you tell a little about it? It's always you know, a combination of you know, the research, uh, dev teams to tell you what can actually be done right now as opposed to what can be done in half a year. And, you know, the product side and the CEO and people that are out there and talking to people, talking to company and really understanding what the need is. So it's always a combination of many different things. I think uh, Benny, our CEO, has a nice, he always talks about cybersecurity being kind of like a sine wave where we used to always talk about prevention. And then we switched over to detection because everybody said prevention can be done. We can only do detection. And now we kind of shift back to the state where a lot of companies, a lot of startup companies deal uh, mostly with prevention because they're saying there's so many alerts, we can't do detection, we need to do prevention. Uh, and this is something I you know, pretty much uh, believe in myself. So I think it's really important uh, to really deliver things that are really help the clients, as uh, Simon mentioned earlier, for a lot of companies, it's really hard to get the talent, uh, really 
hard for them to even understand. Even if, uh, as you said, if you have a CEO that needs to hire CISO, but he doesn't know security, how can you interview? So how can you know if he really provides you know, the value that you need for your company? And how to even so, define value? You know, how even yeah. to measure what good cybersecurity looks like? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think, uh, especially in cybersecurity, a lot of people really like to keep it as kind of like a black magic voodoo thing where nobody really knows how it works. Nobody wants to deal with it. Uh, you know, just let's do a pen test and tell me ABC what I need to do. And hopefully I won't have to hear about it for another year because I really don't want to invest the time or it seems like too complicated for me to deal with it. And, and I think this shift that we are seeing now with companies moving more to prevention is kind of a realization that it's kind of on us, the industry, to help solve this problem. I think there are a lot of security is currently not a solved problem, at least in my view. I mean, we're seeing companies being hacked all the time, data is being stolen all the time, ransomware is going wild. Things, you know, kind of seem bleak if you look at the, you know, of the charts of you know, cyber attacks just going up and up. Uh, in terms of value, in terms of records being stolen. So this is a place for us as an industry to really think, okay, something we're not doing something that's working or we need to do something a little bit different because obviously cyber attacks is just going higher and higher. And this is where it's us to come with the solutions and create products that actually solve issues, not just you know give you more alerts or give you some information that's very hard for you uh, as a customer to do something with it. To be honest, it, it sounds uh, motivating to think, you know, when you're working in a, in a startup, in a cybersecurity startup and think it seems like cybersecurity is currently broken and maybe we will be able to fix it with what we are doing. Yeah, definitely. There's too many smart, there's on one hand, on the one hand, you have a lack of talent uh, because you need so much of it. On the other hand, you have so many smart people that like really complicated problem and they don't like to think how they can fix the simple problem. And that's how you get the mm. most sophisticated security solutions that produce all the, and how all these complex detection engines for various behaviors. And what you end up with a very, and every new vector or mini vector or a slight variation of attack will get you a huge volume of new detections and new features, or maybe new companies just relying on that specific thing. And if you look at the Twitterverse or whatever conference you are, people always say the same thing. We need to keep, we're still not doing the basics. We're still not doing like MFA or we're still not doing the very, uh, least privileged access or whatever, all those boring, tedious, not very cool things. If we only have done that, then 99% of attacks would have been prevented. But it doesn't look cool on a presentation to the board, I guess. <laughs> yes, it's not It's not the coolest problem to solve. If you're a security vendor, you, know, you hire this huge SOC, then you want to chase down alerts and do forensics and do all those cool things. They don't want to uh, work on some identity and access uh, management list and narrow it down for something <laughs> smaller. That's more. I have a, a, a tough question, actually. One that's very often asked to, to senior advisors or, or CISOs or you know, people in positions in leadership within the industry, but not very often it's asked to, to researchers. Because you know you're you're on the front line uh, somehow of, uh, of of the cyber war, but how how do you know as an organization you're on the right track 
you're improving your posture over time. A lot of people are, are wondering, how can I measure improvement and, and success? What are good KPIs uh, that tell me that my posture is improving? Um, and and there, you know, there are lots, but I'd love to have your opinion uh, as researchers, you know, seeing what's happening. You know, what are a few simple KPIs that a, a CISO should should um, should monitor regularly and probably report report on to the when I was back back on the vendor side and you come up with this new feature and think, like I said, hey, we're going to save the world. Here's a, this killer feature and that's going to prevent or stop all of your attacks or alert you to exactly what you need to know and problem solve. And what you find out that in, I've been in very successful companies that sold their, they sold their product in millions and millions of dollars to the biggest uh, companies in the world and they always have a team that tries to make sure that the companies actually use the product and that's the yeah customer success <laughs> yeah and, and it's kind of crazy because you sell this box to somebody and i've seen it uh, on the vendor side i was kind of surprised but then i went also to the customer side i saw it there also they have boxes just sitting there they could be plugged into the network or not, or not even plugging into the electricity. And somebody checks the box and says, okay, we have, we bought this product, we protected, but it's not even turned on. So that's the kind of dissonance uh, that you have. And I think it comes from the problem that how can you measure a good security product? Most people don't even know that an attack happened. If nothing happened, if there are no tigers, you know, in the city, is my tiger repellent working? <laughs> Or I'm just not likely to find a tiger. And once I do, well, then it's somebody else's fault, you know. It's it's uh, it's not me. We as a company, when we put it, we do encourage the customers. I can think on, on top of my head two KPIs. I'm not sure exactly how to measure them, but my hunch would be uh, usability on the one hand. Like, is your solution disruptive? That's kind of easy to to measure because the it will hear about it people complain all the time okay it's not very usable you need to do something else until the people stop complaining no complaints it's kind of usable that's mm -hmm. maybe that's the easy part but not always and the other part is can you actually stop attacks so either you some if you know they're just, happening yes so some vendors that's actually also a problem we had uh in one of the features that uh, we were developing, one company, we said, okay, this is, keep using that word, killer feature, but we will believe this, this is a good feature. It's only going to trigger when something really, really fishy is happening. And our next thought would be the product uh, guy came and said, well, how are we going to show any value if nothing happens? Okay, so we must <laughs> show them some bullshit information <laughs> that is not that important at least to give them the feeling, the users, that something is happening and we're not just like sitting there and nothing is going on. And that's what I think what is end up happening with most products is that you get some alerts, most of them are low or medium. And only when you get the high ones or the critical ones, that's when you should pay attention. But maybe you've missed that five low alerts were actually put together yeah. were actually something very, very critical that, that, that you missed. And on the other hand, and you mentioned earlier, you know, monitoring versus prevention. I think that, and we and we touch upon it uh, a lot, Simon and I, on the previous podcast. I think that uh, when there's too much data 
you you don't really you're not really able to use it you you need once again no matter how much automation you have you need so much manpower and work hours in order to really digest this data and do something with it so even if you get more visibility you also get uh, more data that you need to do something with so that's a scale, scale problem yeah i just wanted to add if we're talking about the customer side the enterprise side how to really what KPIs can I use? Or yeah, that was, that was my measure. question. It was more related to you're in charge of, of your organization's cyber defense. You know, you, you can't measure everything. You can't look at everything. What are, what are a few KPIs you should monitor to see if there is indeed improvement in, in your security posture? Yeah, so there are good news and bad news. <laughs> the bad news, I think, is it's really hard. There's no really good, easy answer, easy quantifiable number that can say you are 70% uh, safe or 80% safe and no matter how many startup companies will put that in their dashboard <laughs> I never believe that it means anything but uh, on the other side there's a lot of uh, projects uh, out there you know especially uh, cybersecurity is a very open source company there's a lot of free tools there's a lot of free frameworks out there that you can use uh, you know some of them really famous like Mitre uh, which you can use to say okay how many different attack techniques am I safe against I think the issue is that the devil is really in the details. In many things, it's really hard to say, am I safe against this or technique or am I not? For example, you know, uh, if we look at uh, brute force on Mitre, brute force can happen, you know, so many different platforms and so many different protocols. So how can you say, am I safe against brute force attack? It's, it's a really wide topic. However, uh, I would encourage any, you know, managers out there that are listening to this show to really you know, listen, listen to your security researchers. Uh, you hire them for a reason. They can really tell you, you know, what should you focus on. It, it doesn't have to always come uh, top to bottom. You know, the opinion of the field, of the people that are really interested in these topics, uh, get them excited and get them to you know, really make that impact. And then one last thing I would add is always test uh, everything yourself if you can. A lot of solutions, a lot of things, a lot of implementations sound good on paper, but then once you actually test them, they don't work either because it wasn't implemented correctly or there's some issue or the whatever it is that you're doing uh, isn't working correctly. I've seen it too many times where, you know, companies feel really safe because they have product X, Y, and Z, but then, you know, once you actually try to test and see what it does, it doesn't do anything either because it was just, you know, installed and not ever configured or it doesn't really deal with the problem that you're trying to solve, or that you either you didn't understand what the product does or the vendor wasn't clear enough. But in too many cases, we have too many products that have not enough impact. So always, you know, if you can really test it and not just you know, look at the list and say, okay, this gives me ABC protection. And it goes back to the boring things. There are KPI that are maybe not trivial, but not that hard to measure. But you can always measure them. You don't know when you're being attacked or you don't know how many of the attacks were uh, real or how many alerts were good or bad. You may not know that, but you do know some things about your environment. How many privileged accounts? So you should know how many privileged accounts you have. How many of them have access to which servers? Is it like 50, 80% of your environment with 
in any given moment can be taken like that? Or is it only 50% or 20% or 10%? So these are things that you can, each, in each company or in each technology is a little bit different, but these are things that you can, can continuously measure and say, okay, when when the when the day comes, uh, maybe it already did, when somebody gets inside or gets a, a very strong uh, credential or somehow finds our way to, uh, to our infrastructure, we know we're much better off. Instead of looking at you know how many tickets are open or closed or how many alerts you receive, because this can be very hard to do with or very deceiving. It's it's hard to know what's uh, what's worth uh, uh, measuring, and uh, you know th- th- there's so much you can do on um, trying to understand the the impact uh, of any given product, but trying to understand you know the impact of of a global strategy, not necessarily being aware of everything that's happened. Maybe maybe it all starts with visibility, then it all starts with understanding what could happen, and then uh, taking an uh, you know an adversarial approach, uh, understand what what degree of protection you have against most common you know techniques or or using miter attack framework for instance but um, you've all worked for vendors and obviously you you know you know how big of a business uh, uh, this industry is becoming and and you've mentioned quite quite a few products out there are not actually doing what they're supposed to do or they're not even used you know before we had this this podcast we had a, a brief conversation and you mentioned two topics that were close to your heart one was you know the importance of open source and and the other one was just to comment that the the industry is really weird <laughs> so i'd probably like us to expand on this one in in a second part but uh, uh why why do you what do you mean by why do you think open source is so important can you maybe expand a bit on that most of the companies are small to medium. They can't afford to buy 20, 30, 40 types of uh, security solutions. Uh, not that I think that 20 or 30 or 40 <laughs> security solutions makes you safer. It just means that you have a bigger budget and a bigger team. And for that reason, you need something. Uh, and there are, there are solutions out there. And I think uh, the community is getting uh, better and better. We're we also always trying to write open source tools that help you secure your environment a little bit better. And, and that's what you end up with. You have people who have some open source projects, which hopefully with not that much skill and without knowing anything, will take care of the of the basic that you need if in terms of uh, network security, directory security, cloud security. And so you, so you can get the basic building blocks, even if you don't have biggest budget or the biggest team or all the experience tag and so on and so forth. And that's why I think... and. Open source, I think, is, is the way to get it. In addition to what Ski said, uh, well, first of all, it's free. So, you know, everybody likes free things. Uh, why not? I think also if you look back at cybersecurity, it's always open source and sharing information has always really been part of the culture of cybersecurity. Uh, even if you go back, you know, to days of uh, phone hacking and freaking and things like that, you always had these uh, manuals and things like that being shared, people, you know, IRC channels and stuff like that, sharing knowledge. Um, so it's always been part of the culture and always been part of the identity. But other than that, you know, many times these open source projects are really passion projects. People really uh, care about them and want to do something that's not only fun for them to do technically, but it's also meaningful. So you really get things that give you a lot of value because it comes to solve things that really hurt people or really bother people. And, you know, that's always a sign that something is worth doing. And it's peer-reviewed by its very nature. Yeah, and that exactly was my last point. Peer-reviewed and some projects, you know, have lots of uh, contributors 
Uh, again, if we look at things like Mitre at uh, OWASP for replication security, you have this really big uh, projects that are being contributed to by a lot of different people, a lot of smart people. So you get, you know, potentially a product that is being worked on by you know, the same amount or even more people than when you just go to a vendor and buy something that's maybe developed by a much smaller team with a greater focus on a specific area. So there's always a lot of value in open source. I thought, Dekal, you, you, uh, you wanted to share some thoughts on... Uh on the industry. Uh, I don't know if that's still something you want to do or if that's what we've been doing, but uh, if you want to share some more on what you think is wrong or weird with the industry, we can... Uh... Yeah, I think it was actually Sagi. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> we're look-alike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there was any additional I, guess, I guess we covered uh, some of these points of how do you know that the whole cybersecurity thing is kind of weird because people, you know, you buy it and... You think you're safe because nothing is happening or you're overwhelmed with information. So you feel secure because you get a lot of data from whatever product you put in there, but you're swamped with data. So you need more people. So it's kind of a machine that is is feeding itself. But, but I think it's the point that I mentioned earlier. It's uh, uh, There has been actually, there are some waves of security companies that are doing great because there's a wave and there's a hype. Uh, I don't remember who told me this quoted from somewhere which I don't remember where it was from, but it's a lot of the blind leading leading the blind have this circular movement of analysts going to the industry and saying what's the next big thing? They say some buzzword. They say, okay, well they write it down in the report. The CISO reads the report. He buys the product. There's more money in it. Other competitors come into the market and everything blows up. And is it effective? Who knows? There are no clear KPIs. So how do you know if it's even effective? So that's, I guess, what it's wrong with it. So there's a lot of hype and a lot of fake news in uh, in cybersecurity uh, because a lot of products uh, struggle to deliver or they're doing a great job at what they're doing. But when you put it in the field and a SOC analyst has to deal with this product, maybe he doesn't have the capabilities or maybe just overwhelmed with information that no human being can even uh, begin to comprehend or have all the different expertise to actually resolve this issue or another issue. It's, it's probably fed by both sides. I mean, the, the industry is growing because someone will capture or create a market and other people's, people will try to, to grab that, that cash. But also on the buyer side, uh, I think, you know, if, if you're in charge of a cybersecurity budget, just like if you're in charge of any other budget or any other administration, you want it to grow. You know, people people don't want to have less responsibility from year to year. So uh, they're also driving the the, the growth of, of, of the industry. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that works because I haven't been in all these different positions. But from what I see, from my point of view, it's like the, the CISO would read a report. The report would say, this is the next big thing. It goes to the board, say, I need X budget for this new type of technology, it gets the budget and that's why he has to spend it on. And it doesn't matter if it makes the organization more safe or less safe or the same, that's the budget. The next year, there's the next big thing that you need. You're already spending uh, the budget that you did last year. Now, you, the next year, you need more budget because you have more IT, more technology, you know, everything is growing. Now you buy the next big thing and so on and so forth. Thank you.